0: There we go. Thanks so much, Peter. Thank you so much for those of you who sent uh, messages to us as we recovered from COVID. Please, why don't you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, going to be starting in verse 4. We will be reading up to chapter 2, verse 4. As you're turning there, you'll remember hopefully that last time I preached, we focused on the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1, where we learned that because we are lost sinners, God has spoken to us and has provided the means for the purification of sins through Christ the better way. Let's read together from chapter 1, verse 4. Having become As much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And did all the angels of God worship him? And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, In the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to To his own will. Well, unfortunately, we're all very familiar with the recent devastating floods here that have battered KwaZulu Natal and it cost hundreds of lives, including tragically some of those close to us here at church. But I wonder if any of you can remember that we actually had some fairly severe storms and floods back in October of 2017. On the 10th of October in that year, storms had been battering the coast of KZN for a few days, and in Durban Harbor, the MSC Innes, a cargo ship, broke free from her moorings and was blown into the harbor entrance. And she ran aground perpendicular and blocked the entire harbor for a number of days. She was extricated by three, I think it was three or four tugboats eventually. On that same day that she ran aground, Another ship, the SM New York, also broke free of her moorings and ran aground on the sandbar in the middle of Durban Harbor. Both of those ships had not been anchored securely. When the storms came, they broke free, ran aground, and caused chaos. Similarly, as followers of Christ, unless our faith is anchored securely to Christ, we run the risk of running aground and shipwrecking our faith. So how do we prevent shipwrecking our faith? Well, the text tonight is going to show us that we prevent shipwrecking our faith in three ways. Firstly, by focusing on the great Christ. Secondly, by avoiding a great danger. And thirdly, by affirming a great salvation. So firstly we prevent shipwrecking our faith by focusing on the great Christ. In chapter 1 verses 4 to verses 4 through to verse 14 the writer to the Hebrews compares Christ to angels. Now I know what you're thinking. Why would the writer to the Hebrews start his defense of Christ by comparing him to angels? I want you to remember what I'd said last time. book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish believers. They were probably living in or near the city of Rome, and this group was suffering persecution from two different sources. Firstly, they were suffering persecution from their Jewish family, friends, and community. And secondly, they were suffering persecution from the Roman authorities. It's important to note that most, but not all of this group, were believers. All of this is significant because it helps us to understand why the writer begins his defense of Christ's superiority by comparing him to angels. You see, angels held a very special significance to the Jews. There's a rich history of angels intervening in the lives of the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. So they were revered by the Jews. Angels were created spirit beings that are higher than man. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, which says that when he became a man, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. You see, angels were messengers, and they are messengers, sent by God. Both the Hebrew and the Greek words for angel literally means messenger. And we see this messenger function in many places in Scripture. Scripture. For example, three messengers appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre in Genesis 18, where we read, when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. An angel of the Lord also appeared to the wife of Manoah in Judges chapter 13. We read there, it says, There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Mino, and his wife was barren, had borne no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and spoke to her. An angel appeared to Zacharias in Luke chapter 1 with the message that his wife would bear a son, and they were to name him John. Angels also serve God in heaven. They are variously called... The sons of God, small s, the holy ones, the heavenly hosts, they continually attend God on his throne, and they also make up God's army. An angel bearing a flaming sword was set to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. It was an angel of the Lord that stretched out his hand and destroyed 70,000 Israelites. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, one single angel did that. Scripture tells us that angels appeared to Hagar, to Lot in the city of Sodom, to Jacob in his various visions, to Moses, to Joshua. An angel appeared to Elijah while he lay under a juniper tree in 1 Kings. But not only were angels revered by the Jews because of the rich history of angel appearances and interventions in the lives of the Israelites, but also most significantly, a huge multitude of angels gave the law to Moses with Yahweh on Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy chapter 33 says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Sair. He shone forth from Mount Paron. And he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. And Paul confirms their role in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, where he says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been, been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. This is perhaps the most important reason why the writer to the book of Hebrews compares Jesus to angels. He's saying to these Jews, if you as Jews revere the message of angels so highly, how much more should you revere the message of the creator of angels? You see, angels are magnificent, powerful, created beings, but they pale into insignificance when compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's further explore the question, why compare Jesus to angels? I mentioned that the Jews were, the Jewish Christians were facing persecution. Up until this time, Rome had uh, viewed Christianity simply as being a part of the Jewish religion. Now, Judaism was in a very unique position in the Roman Empire in that it was exempt from a large amount of Roman religious persecution. However, at this time, Rome began to differentiate between Judaism and Christianity, and they began to see them as two separate religions. And so a lot of the protection that Christians had had up until this point began to fall away. So the first pressure that these Jewish Christians faced was to avoid roman persecution but the second was to avoid the, was the pressure to return to judaism because of the pressure they were feeling from their jewish brothers and sisters they were being kicked out of the synagogues out of their families and they were suffering persecution all around the pressure for them to renounce christ was huge And one of the ways they could do this was by saying that Jesus was the greatest of all angels. But he wasn't actually God. And by compromising on the deity of Christ, these Jewish believers could avoid this persecution. A little bit like that today. People are quite happy with you saying that Jesus was a good moral teacher. I heard Elon Musk say that the other day. They're quite happy with you saying that he lived a godly life as an example for us to live. They're even happy for you to say that Jesus was a great prophet. But don't you dare claim that he is God and he's the only way of salvation. The world cannot abide that. C.S. Lewis had something profound to say about this, and I quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, he says. in an attempt to become more relevant, mainline Christianity today has watered down Christ to such a degree that even non-Christians are noticing. Neil McCormick was a columnist for London's Daily Telegraph. And he wrote an article where he recalled his religious education who he happened to have with U2's Bono. They were very good, they were very good friends. The classes were, quote, this is what he said in a column in the Daily Te- Telegraph. The classes were characterized by a kind of woolly Christian liberalism, presided, presided over by a well-meaning, but as far as I was concerned, a drippily ineffective young teacher. There would be Bible readings and class discussions in which Jesus took on the character of a beatific hippie, while God seemed to be personified as an avuncular old geezer. Only wanted the best for his extended family if that was the case. But I wondered, why was I being kept awake at night wondering if the torments of hell awaited me when I died? I would fire this and related questions at my long suffering teacher, but I never received satisfactory answers, just platitudes about Jesus loving me. So the writer to the Hebrews is also writing for us, encouraging us to cling to the magnificence and deity of Christ and not to compromise on who Christ really is. And in the passage before us tonight, this anonymous author lists a series of seven testimonies or prophecies where he compares Jesus with the angels. It's interesting to note that the writer quotes from the Septuagint Bible which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And he quotes it so freely that it seems that if you were to poke him with a needle, he would just bleed scripture. I love that about him. So now he paints a magnificent picture comparing Jesus to angels. He dips his paintbrush in the rich colors of the Old Testament. Let's briefly look through what he said. Verse 5, he said, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now this is obviously a rhetorical question, to which the answer is, none of them. This shows us, firstly, Christ has a superior name. God would never ever call an angel his own son, his only begotten son. The most that can be said about the angels is that they are God's messengers. And that's far inferior to being a son. But secondly, verses 6 to 9, we see that the section tells us that Jesus is superior in his deity, while the angels are inferior in their servanthood. How can Jesus be chief of the angels when all the angels worship him? How can Jesus be a created being, when all the angels worship him. Verse 6, it says, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Jesus' deity gives him the greatest honor, and it is all the angels that worship him. Now, there was one angel who desired to be worshipped, and he was cast out of heaven, along with a lot of others who rebelled against God, that angel was Lucifer. So you can see that the consequence of an angel desiring to be worshiped is banishment from heaven and cursed, being cursed by God. It's impossible that Jesus was as low as an angel. We see also in verses 10 to 12 that Jesus is superior as creator. He was the one who laid the foundation of the earth. He is the one who will remain forever, even though the created things will perish. Angels were created beings. And again, we see there is simply no comparison. Verses 13 to 14, we see that the final part of this painting, the writer shows us Jesus' is superior in destiny. Jesus' ultimate destiny is to conquer all his enemies to have them prostrates at his feet under his heel. But angels are servants. During the years fifty-eight to fifty-three BC, Julius Caesar conquered all of Gaul, except for the village of Asterix and Oblix. But the closing years of that campaign were particularly harsh. Caesar was cruel to the Gauls. After a year of discontent, the Gallic tribes rose up in a united revolt against Rome under the leadership of Arvenian Vercingetorix. After a series of engagements, one of which Julius Caesar actually lost, Chief Vercingetorix decided to defend the large Iron Age settlement of Alesia, and that's near the modern city of Dijon in Burgundy, in France. Now, each side had about the same number of troops. But historians differ, but they think between 70 and 80,000. And because of his recent defeat, Caesar decided not to mount a frontal assault. So he lay siege to the settlement. But the Gauls knew that they wouldn't last long because of their dwindling supplies. Imagine trying to feed 80,000 soldiers in a small settlement. So he sent out an appeal to all of the surrounding Gallic tribes, And soon, Caesar himself was surrounded by a massive Gallic army. Plutarch tells us that they numbered over 300,000. But here, Caesar showed his brilliance by constructing almost overnight a series of forts facing outwards. So he built a series of forts facing inwards, besieging the settlement, and outwards, protecting himself against the other Gauls. After a series of massive attacks, the Gauls failed and retreated, and eventually, Vercingetorix had to surrender to save the lives of his people. And according to Plutarch, he rode his war horse out of Alesia on his own. He rode around the Roman camp. He rode up to Caesar, who was sitting on a raised dais, dismounted, stripped himself of all his armor, and he laid his armor, his weapons, and himself, prostrate, at Julius Caesar's feet. That's the picture to bear in mind when we read about Jesus' enemies being made his footstool. To complete the picture, seven years later, Vercingetorix was executed in Rome. Likewise, at the last day, Jesus' enemies will be thrown into the outer darkness for eternity. Jesus Christ is the all-conquering Son of God. What about the angels? They are simply sent out to render service to us believers. They do not sit on a throne. Enemies do not bow down to them because they are servants. Christ is infinitely greater than the angels. So, we avoid shipwrecking our faith by focusing on the great Christ. Secondly, we prevent shipwrecking our faith by avoiding a great danger. Look with me in chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? the pastor-writer to the Hebrews now gives the first in a series of five warnings that are spread throughout the book of Hebrews. This first warning is against drifting away. The meaning is clear. In order to stop ourselves from drifting, we must pay close attention to what we have learned, namely the glorious truth that Christ is superior to all. The writer to the Hebrews does not shy away from dealing with difficult issues. And the five warnings that he gives throughout the book only get more and more difficult and challenging. We also mustn't shy away from facing these difficult warnings because note that the writer includes himself. He says, we must pay careful attention so that we do not drift away. The idea that we may be able to drift away and shipwreck our faith is one of the most frightening concepts in Scripture. We must dwell upon this for a time. As Reformed believers, we tend to be very quick to jump in and say, that true and permanent drifting will only happen if a person is not truly saved. And yeah, that is correct. But the writers included this warning as a big red flag for us telling us to stop, to pause, to deeply examine ourselves. So before you have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, and I tend to have it as well, and say, but this will never apply to me because I'm saved, I urge you, stop, pause, ponder, take time to truly examine yourselves. And dare I say it, let the extreme discomfort caused by this warning sit on you for a time. Because maybe you are saved, but you are drifting so dangerously close to those rocks of destruction that the only remedy from God will be extreme measures. Or maybe you think you are saved, But the fact that you have drifted so far from God is a sign and a conviction to you that you aren't. This warning is a sharp reminder to take heed. But notice that this warning is tied directly to what we hear and what we listen to, it is tied to what we feed ourselves on as believers. If we neglect feeding ourselves on the truths of Christ, we will slowly begin to drift. And the big problem is that the drifting is imperceptible at first. It begins when we say, I forgot to read my Bible today. Don't worry, I'll do it tomorrow. But then we don't. Or we wake up on a Sunday morning, having gone to bed the night before without the things of Christ in our minds, And our minds drift on that Sunday morning to the sunny weather and to thoughts of how good a round of golf would be. Not for me, I'm useless at golf, but some people might. And you say, just this one Sunday, I will go. So the drift begins slowly, almost undetected. HDM Spence said this, drifting away is a silent departure, gradual, unnoticeable. At sunset, the ship is close to shore and all is safe. Without a warning, it drops into the tide and swings round, and with no sound but the ripple of the water, is carried down the stream to the open sea. And the crew may sleep through it all. So, departure from Christ may be as involuntary and quiet as that a silent, ceaseless, unconscious creeping back to old habits. And there is its danger. Drifting away means leaving Christ without knowing it so we find, find ourselves far out to sea. I'm not saying that circumstances aren't crazy and difficult at times and that they don't intervene in our lives, but we need to be extremely vigilant and we need to be hard on ourselves. Don't let yourselves tend towards slothfulness and comfort. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, if the great apostle Paul tells us that he disciplined himself in such a way as to ensure that he is not disqualified, how much more should we not be careful ourselves? Paul also says in Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Are you neglecting the word? Are you finding it difficult to have regular quiet times? I know I do. I use a resource called Explore Daily Notes I get from Sire. It helps to structure my daily quiet time. And it's a discipline every day. Ask Sire to order you a copy. They are deep and helpful. Have you been neglecting meeting together with the saints? Are you finding less and less time for church services, for home group? Are you finding more excuses? Perhaps you like me and you find it difficult to pray. I found that when prayer is difficult, I use resources like the Valley of Vision And there's a new book out called Piercing Heaven, which is a collection of Puritan prayers that have been compiled in modern English. I use them as a springboard in my prayer life. The mark of a true child of God is that they do not drift for long, and they run longingly back to the arms of their Savior. John Piper said, Drifting is infinitely dangerous Oh, that I could waken you all to be joyfully vigilant in living the Christian life of looking to Jesus, considering Jesus, and listening to Jesus. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, as easy as listening and as light as looking. But not only is this warning for believers to take heed, it's also for unbelievers. Remember remember earlier I said that these Jewish believers, not all of those Hebrews were believers. So the writer was speaking to both believing and non-believing audience. If you hear this evening and you've heard the gospel repeatedly and have not yet bowed the knee to Christ, this passage is also a severe and stern warning for you. Maybe you attend regularly. Maybe you hear the message of salvation over and over again. It's now become so familiar to you that you could even explain it to somebody. But you've never bowed the knee. Don't keep rejecting the offer of salvation. One day, the offer will come to an end. This warning is for you right here, right now. Because you notice in verse 2, he says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, And every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If you keep on rejecting it, you will not escape the wrath of God. Paul Washer said, when a man gets saved, he gets saved from God. That sounds strange. But he says the justice of God was coming for you. God saved you from himself, and God saved you by himself. Don't put off. Make the decision. Now is the time. So we prevent the shipwreck of our faith by focusing on the great Christ, by avoiding a great danger, and thirdly, we can prevent the shipwreck of our faith by affirming the great salvation. So why is this salvation so great? Well, let's have a look from verse 3. After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So firstly, this salvation is great because it was first spoken by the Lord Jesus himself. So the writer, having explained how superior Christ was to the angels, now he is saying, he is so great. Listen to his message. What was his message? Salvation. Christ was the one who proclaimed the salvation about himself. Matthew chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Mark chapter 1, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So follow this logic. The writer to the Hebrews has shown how Christ is far superior to the angels. The angels were used by God the Father to give the law to Israel. Now, if Christ is so superior to the angels, how much more should we not listen to the message of salvation that Christ himself preached about himself? But not only did Christ give the message, but secondly, the message of this great salvation was confirmed to the apostles. Verse 3, notice it says there, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Jesus' disciples were given a special commission to go and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Mark chapter 16, And he said to them, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all of creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Luke 24, Repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, you are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. And Peter in Acts chapter 2 says, This Jesus God raised again, to which we are all witnesses. Just as an interesting side note here, you'll notice that the writer to the Hebrews says it was confirmed to us by those who heard. It seems to imply that maybe Hebrews wasn't written by one of the apostles. He was probably a second generation Christian, most likely writing under the direction of one of the apostles. Just an academic side note. Not only was the great salvation declared by Christ himself and that the apostles were sent as witnesses, but God accompanied these declarations with signs and wonders. Notice in verse 3 it says, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. The presence of the signs and wonders and miraculous gifts served to confirm their authority, the apostolic authority. It was meant to confirm to the hearers that the words these men were speaking were truthful and trustworthy and from God. And the presence of signs and wonders and miracles was a mark of their true apostleship. I'm not going to camp on this point too long because the topic of signs and wonders in today's age is a huge topic, deserves much more time. But suffice it to say that the purpose was to confirm what they spoke. Is the Apostle Paul alive today? No. Is Apostle Peter alive today? No. So the short answer is that the signs and wonders and miracles are not for today in the sense that is given in this passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 43 says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So the pastor-writer of Hebrews focuses on this great salvation in order to reinforce to his readers that they must not Neglect the teachings of Christ and drift away. Are you drifting? Are you neglecting the spiritual disciplines? Are you perhaps avoiding Christ's call on your life? One of my most beloved hymns, and I think at HBC as well, is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's written by a man by the name of Robert Robinson. One of the verses has these words. It says, Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. But what most of you probably don't know is that these words are actually quite ironic. Because after he was saved under the preaching of George Whitefield, and after pastoring a large church of over a thousand people for about one or two decades, Roberts Robinson himself wandered far from the faith. As he wandered into sin, he traveled and in his travels, he made the acquaintance of a young Christian lady. And in the course of their conversation one day, she asked him what she thought of, what he thought of the hymn that she was currently reading. Guess which one it happened to be? Come now found. He tried to evade her questions, but she continued to push him for an answer. Suddenly, he began to weep. And we are told that he then said, I am the man who wrote that hymn many years ago. I would give anything to experience again the joy I knew then. Although greatly surprised, she reassured him and told him that the streams of mercy that he wrote about still flowed. He was so deeply touched that turning his wandering heart to the Lord, he was restored to full fellowship. I wonder if any of you happen to know what was the cause of his wandering from the faith. He began to doubt the deity of Christ. And for a time, he became a Unitarian. He believed that Christ was not fully divine and not truly God. That's the whole point of this passage in Hebrews. If you no longer have the divine Christ as your anchor, you will drift. Robert Robinson had drifted, but God brought him back. That Puritan Richard Sibbs once said, A ship that lies at anchor may be something tossed, but yet it still remains so fastened that it cannot be carried away by wind or weather. The soul, after it hath cast anchor upon God, may be disquieted a while, but this unsettling tends to a deeper, settling. The more we believe, the more we are established. Faith is an establishing grace. By faith we stand, and stand fast, and are able to withstand whatsoever opposeth us. For what can stand against God, upon whose truth and power faith relies? The devil fears not us, but him to whom we fly unto for succor. It is the ground we stand on that secures us, not ourselves. I urge you, flee to Christ or run back to Christ. For unless our faith is anchored securely to Christ, who is infinitely greater than even the angels, we run the risk of drifting and shipwrecking our faith. Let's pray. Forgive us, Father, for taking your grace and truth for granted. Help us, Father, please, to be more earnest in our walk with you. Help us to be more diligent in spending time in your word and prayer. Help us to be diligent in meeting with fellow believers. Oh, Heavenly Father, reawaken in us a desire for your truth and for your word and for fellowship. Help us to see the glory and majesty and holiness and perfection of your Son. Lord, we commit our souls to your mighty hand. Under the sanctifying, life-giving and supporting influences of your Spirit, help us to wait for your mercy that leads to eternal life. And then, Lord, nothing will sidetrack us. No fear of suffering, no allure of pleasure, No false arguments, no false idols, no temptations, but guided by the light and truth of Scripture. Your holy word, Lord Jesus, we will march to your holy hill. And when we escape all those dangers, we will greet the dawn to an everlasting day. And we will be gloriously in your presence, Father so we commit ourselves to you now, Father. Part us with your blessing. May this week be committed to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.